Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you. I'm Chris Payne. I'm the lead pastor here, and I've been sad that I missed last week. I was actually um, in Fredericksburg. How many of you guys ever go to Fredericksburg? Yeah? Get a little wine. We're going to talk about that today. So uh, water to wine a little bit. But uh, Fredericksburg, uh, my parents, actually my mom and stepdad, are pastors of a church, Oak Hills Church, which is part of Max Locato's churches. They, they're there. And so we were talking about our family. If you've never heard my family story, um, I'm not going to go into it. There's no time. But just go watch Days of Our Lives. And, um, and then you'll get a little glimpse of what it looks like. And someone's coming out of a coma this week for sure. So it's going to be exciting. But we're, we're super glad that you're here. Thanks for attending our third service. And we're diving into the book of John. Last week, our wonderful, amazing elder G. Yoon started us in John 1. Yeah? yeah? Exciting? More standing ovations. You just didn't see it. You didn't see it. So he did an awesome job. My kids bring some juice to the table, so appreciate that, appreciate that. But G, G did a great job introing, it's a big task, um, starting, doing some his, historical background, all that kind of stuff. And we love going through the scripture. We're going to be going through the book of John all summer. So you can join us, as he said, on our app, as Henry said earlier, on our app, we have a thing called Starter, and it's clcstarter.com. And or you can just download our app and check it out. And we do daily devotionals through the book of John. So this whole week, starting today, we'll or starting tomorrow, we'll go through John 2 and then 3 and 4 and go and on and so. So you can kind of continue to dive in the word. It's so powerful as we're doing it together and God is changing us according to him and his image. So we're going through John specifically. Um, I really felt... Um, through prayer and like that God wants us to go through this book. We also typically do a book of the Bible during the summer, specifically sometimes other times we've gone through Romans, we've gone through Ephesians, we've gone through Philippians, we've gone through um, a little bit of Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. We've done a lot of different books and this time we're going through John specifically because I love the book of John. John is often the book that people tell people to read if they first come to know Christ. Like, go read John. You want to know about John? You want to know about Jesus? Read John. Because what John does is he takes all of these stories of Jesus, which John says at the end of his book, if all of the stories and all of the things that Jesus did were written down, there would be a not enough books in all of the world to contain it. And then John proceeds to write down and, of course, shows us specific things. And so there's a reason for every story he brings. There's a, there's a method to his madness. And what he's trying to show us ultimately is who this Jesus is. I want to start, before we go into John 2, I want to start in John 1, verse 14, that says this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is a key starter to me, and, and I believe John was very um, honest and, and put this in there specifically for a reason, and here's why. I think the world has never seen someone inhabit this earth that was full of both, both grace and truth. Not half grace and half truth, 
Or like some of us, our personalities are driven by, a lot of times, either grace or truth. For instance, some people are much more grace-centered and grace-filled in the way they approach people, and other people are more truth-filled. And so grace-type people accept us for who we are, but they never help us ultimately become who we should be. A lot of times the proclivity of grace is just, I welcome you, I accept you, I love who you are, but I'm not necessarily going to challenge you to be something else because I'm just accepting you where you are. And that's needed, but that in and of itself is not fully what is needed. Now, if you're more of a truth teller and like a truth person, maybe you're hitting your spouse this morning, um, those kind of people inspire us with their courage but turn us off with their intimidation and often their judgment, okay? So people that have more proclivity towards that end. I I like what Kevin DeYoung says. He's an author and pastor. He says this, if you are a grace person, you are more concerned about being loved. If you are a truth person, you are more concerned about being right, even if it means being unloved. Both have their dangers. Something is wrong if everyone hates you. And something is probably just as wrong if everyone loves you. And Jesus inhabited this trait. He wasn't partial. He was full of both grace and truth. And we're going to see this in John, not only in John chapter 1, he says it, but then I think he demonstrates it in the stories that he tells. And especially in chapter 2, the first couple stories that we see of Jesus is the story of him turning water to wine and his grace an act of grace in the midst of this. And then the second story we're going to see next week is a very true story where he goes into the temple, gets some whips, and drives out the salesmen that are in the temple selling things. And so you see elements of both, but you see him full of both. And the world has never seen this. And I think John is displaying this. This is someone we should follow, we should look to, we should ultimately believe in and trust in because he's like no one else. Not only that, John shows us the divinity. Jesus is God, and it's very explicit through the scripture. So check this out. I'm going to read John chapter 2. We're going to go all the way 1 through 11, and then we're going to come back and see what it says to us. So verse 1 says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. 
This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. God, honor your word, illuminate our heart to fall more in love with you and see you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at John 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Right away, we're drawn into a wedding. One of the first descriptions we see Jesus, him, and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. Now, I don't know how many of you guys, how many of you guys have been to a wedding this year already? Yeah, we're hitting in weddings, so you got one coming up, maybe. Okay, a lot of us went to the Love's wedding. It was the lovely wedding. It was amazing. And so we're, we're thankful to be there. It was awesome. I don't know about you, but I have certain uh, thoughts when I go to weddings, because I remember my first wedding that I attended was actually my own mom's wedding. I gave her away at, at her and my stepdad. I gave her away at 12 years old. And so I'll do a little reenactment of it because I hadn't gone through puberty yet. So I walk up and I say, me and her sister give her away. Okay, something like that. Maybe with a little bit more like that. And so we gave, uh, I, I gave her away and met my stepdad who uh, they had dated for seven weeks and then got married. And so I was just like, okay, hey, I'll give you away. So a little bit, days of our life. And so that's my family. Um, that was my first wedding I had actually been to and attended that I recall um, of course, I went to a few others, but my favorite wedding, of course, was my own. And seeing my beautiful bride walk out this beautiful, in Brownwood, Texas, beautiful church that we got married in. And the culmination of our relationship, I'd known my wife since we were nine years old. And then getting to marry her, it was, it was just an amazing event for us. I remember... Probably the craziest wedding I ever have performed um, and uh, officiated at. I was invited by a friend uh, to Nashville. He married a girl whose dad was the producer uh, of Amy Graham, Michael B. Smith, and all of these Christian artists. And he had like gold records down in his basement and all this. And so I show up. I didn't realize what I was getting myself into. Huge church. The Nashville strings are up on the balcony. And the, the, the doors open. And it's almost like doves fly out. It wasn't that. But it felt like that. And the Nashville strings start going. And Amy Grant and Vince Gill are singing a duet while she walks down the aisle. And I'm sitting there going, well, okay, what am I saying again? I was like 25. What am I doing here? Uh, I, I actually remember doing dinner the night before and singing across Amy Grant and Vince Giller there. And if you want to know more about that story, it's kind of funny. I'm not going to do that. But they were super sweet, great people. And I'm, I'm talking to Amy Grant. We're going back and forth. And then in the background of the radio at the restaurant, baby, baby, like it's going off. And I'm like, this is weird. This is really weird. And I'm sure she felt weird. Or maybe she was like, yeah, I'm I'm the man, woman, whatever. And so it was just an interesting feel that those are the thoughts I have when I think about a wedding. What I love about how this even starts is that Jesus and his disciples were invited. They're not wedding, wedding crashers. They were invited. And, and you know what I think this says is a lot of times we get a picture of who God is or who a religious figure is or person is, and we think like they're staunch and kind of boring. And right away you see these are people that are getting invited to a celebration. Because see, a wedding in that time was a celebration. Weddings would last in that time a week to two weeks. 
and they would have a ceremony, but most of it was just a party. And they would be feeding people and they invite people, not only from their village, a lot of times from other villages. So there could be hundreds of people there. It was a huge event that lasted and lasted and lasted and lasted. And Jesus was invited. Now we know the end of the story. Imagine if Jesus wasn't invited. What would have happened or what would have not occurred? But it's interesting that Jesus was invited. It makes me think, Maybe we have a wrong picture of who Jesus is if we're thinking, it's party time. Let's invite God. Maybe we have a wrong picture of who God is in our life, his personality, what he's about. But these people knew something about Jesus that we want to bring this guy. We want to, in fact, even bring his disciples and he was invited there. And I think we already get something right away. God wants to be invited into our lives. God wants to be invited into our party. He's a gentleman. He doesn't often just rush you. He's looking for you to also come to him and invite him in. Verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now this tells you something about Mary, the mother of Jesus, that she had some level of authority to find this out because they're kind of keeping on the hush-hush because the fact that the wine ran out says a lot about the family and the two people being married. See, at that time, if you have this week to two-week-long marriage, you need to supply the food, you need to supply the wine, and you need to be ready to bring the party. This is a festival. And to say the wine ran out is to say you didn't plan well and ultimately Ultimately, you could be humiliated for the rest of your life. Imagine being known as the bride and groom and that family for the people that didn't plan really well and didn't have their things together enough to think about the community because they wasted their money in other ways. You weren't really thinking about us. Oh yeah, that's the young couple that we went and they ran out of wine. They don't really care about what we're doing. Can you imagine if they ran out of wine and mismanaged their wedding? What's their marriage going to be like? Imagine the social atmosphere and culture of the time was enough for Mary to be panicked and know the inside track that something is going on. But what I love about Mary is she doesn't take it to the master of the feast. She takes it to the real master and she takes it to Jesus. And she says to him, they have no wine. This makes me think about how many times we're going about life and we're filling our life with all sorts of things because we think the next thing is going to be the best thing. And we come to the end of ourselves and realize, I ran out. Like, we think if I get another job, that's the thing that's going to fill me. If I get another degree, now that, then I'm going to fill. If I get another spouse, if I, get, if I go on another vacation, like, that's the thing that's going to be it. And we are leaky people that run out. And I love that Mary said, I'm going to take this to Jesus because he has something that doesn't run out. There's something about Jesus. He's going to be able to take care of this problem. Because he has something that is everlasting. And I think this is a good thing for us to consider in our life when we feel empty, when we feel dry, when we feel like we're going from experience to experience, just consuming one thing to the next. 
and not realizing there is only one that can ultimately satisfy us. She takes it to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Look at his response, and I wouldn't recommend this response unless you're the son of God. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now the NIV likes to sensitize this, and it says, dear woman. But the Greek does not say dear woman. The Greek says woman. <laughs> now, Jesus, we know he's not a chauvinist. We know this is not his mentality. He's not rude. And what is he doing? Here's what I think is happening in this moment. Just like if you're a single person at a wedding, as a single person at a wedding, you have different feelings that other people have. You have one of three feelings, maybe. The first feeling could be, Oh, I'm so happy for my friend, and they're getting married. This is great. But, man, my wedding is going to be better than this. And always a bridesmaid, never a bride. And you have this feeling of, like, am I ever going to find that bride? Maybe you have the feeling of, man, I'm glad that's not me. That dude's crazy, or that girl's crazy, or that, this whole thing is crazy. Whatever you are, whatever context you are, whatever feeling that stirs up, there's something specifically that happens in a single person that's different than a married person. And Jesus is single. And I believe he's at this wedding. And I think his head's a little in the clouds, like what we would do. We're thinking about something else, even though we're there. And why do I say that? Because I think he's a little startled. When his mom comes to him frantic, he's like, oh, I was thinking about something else, woman. What does this have to do with me? And here's what I think he was thinking about from his words. My hour has not yet come. See, Jesus uses this term, and the scripture uses this term a lot, in the hour of God's arrival. In, in John 17, Jesus would say to the Lord in this high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, my hour has now come to glorify you and glorify the Son. And the hour was his hour of death. The hour also in Revelations refers to his hour of judgment or the hour that he's going to come and bring his own feast back to his people. I think Jesus is heads in the clouds as a single person and he's thinking about his wedding day and he's thinking about his feast one day. And the hour that is to come, which is why he said, my hour is not here yet. I think his head is there because he's not thinking about a physical bride. He's thinking about his spiritual bride and the death that it's going to take in order to bring her back into the husbandry of God, into the family of God, and ultimately the feast that he's going to have one day that's going to be amazing and brilliant. I think that's where he is. And then his frantic mom comes and he's like, what does this have to do with me? Because I don't think... He goes, well, what does this have to do with me? My hour's not come, but okay, I'll oblige. I think he was thinking about that hour, which is why John put that specifically. And now he comes back and he responds to his mom. Look how his mom responds. She didn't say, woman, how dare you call me woman? You know, I birthed you. I went to Egypt. I went to Bethlehem. How dare, like, he did, she didn't do that. That's how they talked back then. She did not do that. What did she do? I love her response. She doesn't get offended. She doesn't question him. She knows something about him. She's already saying, I'm going to him for a reason. Look what she says. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That's a message by itself. 
Go to the right source and then just do whatever he says. Don't question him. Stop going all, all these other places. Do what he says. And I love this word servant for you deacons in our church. This is the same word diakonos in the Greek, deacon. He goes to the servants or she goes to the servants and says, just do whatever he says. This command is really powerful. She had some level of authority in order for them to even listen to her. And she dumped that authority to him and said, you've got to take this over. No one else, not even me, can do anything. I love what it continues to say, verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, these six stone water jars, I think, were, were placed in, in an obvious place. I, I think, this is my own understanding, is these stone, there's specific stone water jars for purification. You had to have certain living water from a living water source at that time in order to fill that four rites of purification that were done in the synagogue, that were done in temple in order to cleanse yourself before entering into a place. You see, though, at a wedding, you didn't necessarily have to perform those same rites. So I happen to think that the wedding party had those very expensive stone water jars there in order to show Jesus and the disciples how pious and religious they are. We too have the means and the ability, and we believe in this, and we want to make sure everything is done really well. See, they had wasted and used their money in order to look good instead of to be able to feast, instead of to be able to have the wine. And yet Jesus is saying, Okay, I'll use this, 20 to 30 gallons each. And look what he says. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now, we can easily just pass by this and run through it. But, but here, here's the thought I want to put in your head. Because I think often when we think about Jesus, when we think about miracles, when we think about God, we think the way God does stuff is, see, God is just going to say, hold on, let there be wine right? In a very dramatic way. And he's just God. This is how God works. This is how God operates. Just do it. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus oftentimes, most of the time, offers a commandment to do before the blessing or miracle comes. And he involves the servants, those willing to do whatever he says, in the miracle. See, because Jesus could let there be wine. But this is not how he operates typically. I'll give you another example. There's a lame man from birth. He doesn't say, be healed. What does he say? Arise and take up your mat. Do something commanding you. You see Lazarus. He doesn't say, be alive. He says, come forth. Peter is wanting to walk on water. And he says, God, Jesus bid me to come to you. And he says, come, like step out. God often brings you a command before a blessing. Brings you a command before a miracle. And yet, see, often we just want the miracle. We want to be like, you know what? God, you can do whatever you want. You're holy. You're great. You have the power and the ability to do it. What am I? I'm nothing. And in fact, 
That's not how God operates. Of course he can do it, but he wants to use people and he wants to issue a command to be followed and to see, I think, ultimately the faith of the people. God, of course, gets the glory. Jesus alone can do the miracle, but he wants to use people that are willing to lay themselves down at what he says. Because look at what it says. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. Here's a commandment. And they filled them up to the brim. I think a lot of us at this time would have been like, okay, Jesus, listen, maybe you misunderstood. They don't need water, bro. Okay. They certainly don't need all of this filled up. Like, I don't think you understand. See, the means to the ends is wine. So what we need to do is get some grapes, start having a party and crush it. Like, we need to do something. You need to multiply those grapes. Like, we got to do something. And Jesus is like, fill those things up with water. See, oftentimes God gives you a command that makes zero sense. Because he's trying to include you into the miracle, even when you don't understand what he's doing ultimately. There's so many times in our life that, that you think, you know what, I, I, need, I need like complete healing and everything. And God comes in and says, you need to go love your wife. And you're like, no, 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 see, here's what I need. I need like this. And he's like, no, you need to love your spouse. No, 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 see, what you don't understand is what had happened was I've got this ailment here. And he's going, no, do this and the healing comes. Like get the water and I'm going to bring the wine. But listen and do what I'm telling you to do. He's not trying to misdirect you. He's trying to get you to follow him, even sometimes, especially when it doesn't make sense. I'll give you an example. Um, I was at a, a conference, uh, Every Nation Pastors Conference. We're part of a great organization called Every Nation. And uh, they brought in a, a, a speaker that does research. She actually got her graduate degree from Harvard, and she does uh, social research. And her name's Shanti Feldman, and she's a really great speaker, phenomenal uh, author. She was so great. And she was talking about the divorce rate in America. If, how many of you heard the divorce rate in America is roughly 50%, right? And you hear all the jokes, right? And you hear like the comedians like, well, if it's 50%, you know, I wouldn't put on a parachute and jump out of a plane. If it's only 50%, then it's going to work. And you hear all these things, and people are like, ah, oh, don't do marriage. It's crazy. Only 50%, da 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 well, it came out in a research from Barner Research that the church is also 50% divorce rate, and everybody was alarmed. Well, Shanti went with her research people and went and talked to Barna. And these people had said, is this true? Tell me how you got this research. And they found out that they just asked people, are you a Christian? Which, what does that even mean anymore? Hardly. Are you a Christian? And people that say, yeah, and then they, okay, well, those people have been divorced. Now it's 50% for the church too. And she came in and said, that's not really maybe a good test. Let's try some other ways. And so, so what she did is got her research group, went back to those same people and asked them this question. Did you attend church last week? And that divorce rate for the church dropped 27% on a scale. What does that mean? We're not doing a series right now on marriage but what we see statistically is that husbands and wives that come together and sit, and even just sitting in the church service, 27 at least percent less likely to have a divorce. That means God says, this is what I'm asking you to do. Don't forsake the assembly of the brethren. Yeah, but that's not really helping and benefit in my life. It's doing more than you think because you think it's water and it's wine. 
God's producing something more. In fact, they even found out that women, specifically with their spouse, one of their favorite things about church is when their husband puts their arm around them and just touches their shoulder because it shows a sense of security and love that they're not getting a lot of times during the week, but sitting there in service, having that does so much for their marriage. And listen, they didn't even know it. I, I said that first service and all these dudes were like, Ooh, hey girl, my bad. I was going to do that anyway. It's amazing when we're going after one thing and God just says, obey this part and we get the wine. God crushes this area of our life and out comes wine. And yet we think it's got to be A plus B equals C, obviously, and God's going, eh. Even as Eric said earlier, the upside down kingdom, and yet we're the ones that are upside down, not him. We're the ones in the upside down stranger things going, why is everything weird over there? And God's going, come to the light. Trust me, do what he says. Did you know parenting, the best thing parents you can do for your kids, statistically, is not just give them everything they want or do every athletic sport or every event. The best thing you can do is love your spouse with all your heart and your kids will have a developed sense of security and love and care and compassion. It seems different, but that's the way the kingdom works and Jesus says, Listen to my commandments. Like, trust me. And wine can come out of this. And I love this because not only did they trust him and say, okay, we'll fill it. Look what it says. And they filled them up to the brim. Oh, I love it. Like, to the, they didn't just like, all right. Or they didn't do what a lot of religious people do. Like, God, you alone, heavenly Father, can feel. You can turn that water into wine. Jesus, you don't even need my help. You don't even need water. You could just create wine just out of that carpet. Because, you know, it takes a lot of work to fill 150, 180 gallons of water. Because, see, there's no water hose. This is a well. I got to get a pail and I got to go. You know how many hours it probably took them to fill that much? Faith and obedience often takes our energy. Because God is going, I'm looking for zealous people. I'm looking for people that won't even just fill it, but fill it to the brim. Like, what does it look like if God talks to you? And tells you to love your spouse. And you're like, I did that. I told her I loved her. <laughs> right? Are you filling it to the brim? What does it look like in your workplace? Well, I'm kind of working. But you walk into the office like Droopy the dog. Oh, boy. <laughs> and, and God's going, you're not giving me any juice, man. Are you filled to the brim? Are you obeying the thing that God has told you to do? I can't tell you how many times I counsel people and they'll be like, I'm not hearing God or I'm not sure about this. And I'll say, well, what's the last thing God told you to do? Da, 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 da. Have you done that? Well, I'm kind of praying about it. Do that. Do that and do it to the full and fill to the brim. And I'm telling you, not only are you gonna get Refreshing water, but wine will come forth. Because if you read and you follow along John with us, you'll never see God denying someone with that chutzpah and that level of faith and that passion that's just willing to give it all. 
like the woman with the issue of blood, sacrificing her whole life and reputation, telling you God loves it, and I think they were a part of it. Now, without the words of Jesus, they would have filled water and nothing happened. Only God at the end of the day can do it, but I'm telling you God loves people that fill to the brim, that go to the utmost, that surrender to the most. And he said to them, here's the hard part. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So they're not done. They have to draw it out. They have to risk their reputation, risk being humiliated, taking just some junky water to the master of the ceremony, potentially. It's just water. But now it turns into wine. Something powerful that happens in the midst of their obedience and even putting their own reputation on the line. They took it. They didn't question it. They took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from. Though, I love this. He puts in parentheses. Though the servant who had drawn the water knew. I love this. Because Jesus, right, didn't go, I'm going to only talk to the affluent and the influent. And I'm going to show you I'm God. And I'm going to jump off the temple and expose myself in my miracles. He only showed himself to the weak and the poor and those that were willing to serve and do what he asked them to do. Those are the people he goes after. I don't know about you, but that draws my heart into adoration, into a God that I have a different picture because I see some authority and all they do is go around and network with certain people and I feel left out. But I see God, the king of the universe, the one able to turn water into wine, and he only tells the servants what's going on. He didn't even make it a big deal, but they knew and he reveals himself as 1 Corinthians says, to the weak. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and the people drunk freely. Then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. See, because here's what they would do. In case you don't know, wine back then, a lot of people might say, well, it wasn't as strong. It's not alcoholic. Yes, it was. Okay. That's crazy. Yes, it was. In fact, in some ways more so because they didn't have the refrigeration and the ability to do that we have. And so this had alcohol in it. Jesus is not saying go be an alcohol. Everything in moderation. Okay. Don't be an alcoholic. Okay. Okay. But what he is exposing is that not only did Jesus bring wine, but he brought the best kind of wine they've ever had. See, because typically they would leave the bad wine for the end because people aren't very sober and it's kind of the end of the festival. That's what they expect. And Jesus says, I'm bringing the best and I'm bringing something good. Look at this. Verse 11, we'll close. This the first of his signs. This is, excites me because it's so weird if you really think about it. When John is explaining Jesus and the first sign Jesus does, and John wants us to know about it, is turning water into wine. So it wasn't healing a blind man or it wasn't like raising someone from the dead like we would think, oh my gosh, we're feeding it 5,000. Oh, look at all these people. It was this thing that only the servants knew about. And it was this thing that was kind of a luxury so people wouldn't be shamed. Why would you display your miracles like that for the first time? I think what it shows us and tells us is that God is infinitely passionate 
about bringing joy and true joy into our life. He's infinitely passionate that when you invite him, you're not, listen, going to end up just some weird, stoic, boring, judgmental Christian. But the life of Jesus is adventurous and exciting and is there to produce more joy than you could have ever gotten anywhere else. He brings a whole new capacity and understanding of who God is and what he brings to the table. Because wine represents, listen, not only joy and a sense of partying and a festival, but also healing. It was a healing agent at the time. And it's interesting to me that in Exodus, when God delivers his first miracle with Moses, he turns the Nile water into blood as an act of judgment, when Jesus comes on the scene, his first act is an act of grace and joy, humility, just to bring life to the party and keep someone from being shamed. Imagine if they never invited him. But in a very different story, Jesus not only brings the wine, he brings enough for the whole party and then some. They could have ended up rich out of that. The 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine they've ever tasted. This tells us that God loves us, but has so much more for us, so much more joy so much more grace when we've given up on him, when we've given up on everything because we've been hurt and hit and beat up and discouraged by this world. He comes in and says, I'm the great wine bringer. I'm the true master of the feast. And I think it's powerful that this is his first miracle of grace. I've got four questions for you as we wrap up. Number one, what area in your life do you need God to perform a miracle? Is your heart set on doing whatever Jesus says to do as Mary instructed the servants? Okay, God, you're able to perform a miracle. I, I want to believe that. I, I read this. My faith is built. The next question, is your heart set on doing whatever he tells you to do? Are you filling his words to the brim? Those things now that he's speaking to you in your life in full surrender to him. Man, you halfway go to God. God's like, I'm looking for people just to, just, it's not about even your doing. We don't serve a God that's just waiting for our doing, but he's waiting for our complete surrender. That's the greatest act, God. Only you, and now I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Do you see his joyful grace as your ultimate good, as the good wine bringer? Do you see, do you see God this way? See, if you don't, you're not going to ask him for anything. You're certainly not going to go to him when you're empty. You're going to continue to go to everything else. But if you see him as he is, as John is trying to show us who he is, this wine bringer, you're going to go, oh, that's the kind of grace I need. 
And as we sing it, God, as you speak, 100 billion failures disappear. Oh, how could I not do whatever you asked me to do? What else am I doing? What else am I doing with my life? What else deserves my life? God, take me, all of me, in exuberant faith filled to the brim. And I promise you, miracles will happen. The greatest of which is a life change, a heart change.